Ready, uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. travelers and welcome back to planet eight this is your mission commander larry speaking to you from our hidden base chief engineer bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling planet eight in our orbital spy satellite is reconnaissance officer karen and on this episode of planet eight we have a very special guest friest of the show frank Dietz. um you know 
animation, acting, um, a documentary. He's just he's done just about a little bit of everything. Straight away, we're going to kick it over. Chief Engineer Bob, if you can give us a little background on our guest, and then we'll kick it on over to Frank. Chief, take it away. Well, yeah, I invited Frank on the show. I've uh, been wanting to have him on for quite a while. Uh, he and I go back a little ways. In fact, we did the uh, premiere of his Long Live the King documentary on, mm. on King Kong, which was a, a fun night out in San Leandro. And cool. uh, over the years, we've you know caught up at Monster Paloozas and other shows and <laughs> recently Creatures Con. And uh, it's always fun to kind of follow Frank and what's he doing these days. If you, uh, if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see he's everything from writer, producer, alligator wrangler. Uh, I think I saw a picture of him swimming with whales this morning. So <laughs> total renaissance man. And that's kind of what this episode will be about is anything can happen and anything could be brought up. So I'll turn it over to Frank if you want to kind of give everyone an introduction of exactly who you are and what you've been doing. And we'll okay. kick it off from there. Great. Uh, okay. Uh, as Bob said, I am Frank Dietz. Um, I am a screenwriter. Uh, former Disney animation artist, um, occasional actor, uh, alligator enthusiast, is very true. Um, uh, and I've just, um, I, I've worked in many, many different aspects of the film industry, and usually in the, uh, the horror and sci-fi genres, um, at least whenever I can. Um, I also, I mean, I, I, I do write a lot of comedies as well, but they, they most audiences are, are more interested in hearing about the monster stuff. Um, uh, most recently, I was um, a writer on uh, the Creep Show television series on Shudder. Nice. Yeah. Um, and I grew up loving monsters. Um, uh, you know, the... the fake cell that you see behind me there from Abbott and Costellini Frankenstein uh, is uh, I have that because the person who gave it to me knows of my great love for that movie because it was the first movie that I can remember seeing um, at, at all. Um, and I had to be six, maybe. Um Saw it on a on a little, I mean, a giant twelve inch uh, television, black and white television screen. I was to say you were uh, you weren't six years old when it came out, right? I know. Did you no. like first if run I, in the if theater? If I was, or... <laughs> I would look pretty damn good right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I I saw that movie at, at at about as impressionable an age as you can be, and the thing is, is that like I had never seen. A monster movie before that, at least that I can remember. And I'd never heard of Frankenstein. I had never heard of Dracula. I'd never heard of the Wolfman. So all of these characters that I'm watching were brand new. And I, I was, I just became, I was so fascinated by it all. And, you know, I've, I've said this before and I, I can't, I can't really say if I actually said this to myself out loud, but it was certainly swimming around in my head that, Watching that, I had no idea how you do something like that, like how these things get made. But I just knew that, like, I wanted to do whatever that was. Yeah. And 
I held on to that, you know, pretty much my whole life. The greatest thing about like when I finally a few years later discovered Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, mm-hmm. there'd be photos in that magazine of behind the scenes things. So there'd be there would be pictures of Jack Pierce making up Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. There'd be pictures of Ray Harryhausen animating the dragon from Seventh Boy to Sinbad. And I think that's when it clicked that like, oh, wow, you, you this is this could be a job. Like this is something you can actually do, um, and, and I think that was a that was a, a real revelation to me, um, and um, and I just became obsessed with mostly like monsters. Um, I I think that anything that that was um, either a giant reptile or you know a, a Frankenstein, Dracula, any kind of werewolf. Anything stop motion animated really caught my eye. Like even if even if the animation wasn't good, it was the it was the idea that it was animated that just really. Um, I I would love to I loved it any time that in a in a movie that uh, uh, where the um, an animated monster would pick, would like pick up in his mouth uh, a, a human you know a human character and it would be a little you know animated person. <laughs> That would the legs would be kicking and everything like that, <laughs> and even though you could tell that it was a little tiny puppet, I just still loved that. I loved seeing that. Um, I, I just dug it so much. Um, couldn't wait for for any kind of scenes like that. But but I really loved the Wolfman right from the start. Like of the characters in Abbott and Costello and the Frankenstein, the Wolfman spoke to me somehow, and maybe because. Uh, he was sort of a regular guy during the day and, you know, then became a monster. And I sort of maybe just identified with that better than, you know, some creepy European count, you know, or, you know, a eight foot tall, flat headed, you know, monster. Um, and so I remember, I remember like looking in the bathroom mirror and like pretending to, to turn into the Wolfman. <laughs> and and I would even hum like the music that would go along with it. And I I just love the characters so much. And the thing was back then, before we you know, way before we uh lived in this world of instant gratification where if you want to watch a movie you just walk to your shelf and take it down and you know put it on um like i didn't see Abbott and custom lee frankenstein again for years right the only way to see it was if it if, if it didn't come to some art house theater which you know it really did um you had to wait for it to come on television mm-hmm. and sometimes it would be years and you know, i just had to hope that when it did show up that you, you know, ha- were available to watch it and weren't, in, you know, in school or, you know, or at, 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 you know, grandmother's house for Thanksgiving or something like that, where, you know, everybody's watching a ball game or, you know, um, right. and you just didn't have access to it. And, and, you know, they used to show the, some of the, like the universal movies from the fifties, the sci-fi movies. Yeah. So creature, you know, tarantula, deadly mantis, etc. Those movies would very often only be shown 
at least where I live in New York, would only be shown on CBS very late at night. And I mean, like three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, the only way I would be able to see it is, um, if my mother, bless her, would set her alarm and then wake me up and put me in front of the television and she'd go back to bed. Right? Oh, Frank needs to watch one of his movies again. Yeah. You know, and, and she didn't have to do that. And it was great that she, that she did. Um, uh, so, Frank, real quickly, who would search the TV guide for that time for that movie? Was it you or your mother? Because back then the TV guide was like the Bible for, mm-hmm. you know, anything to watch on television. Yeah, yeah. I, used to go, I used to go through and like circle yeah. all the yeah. movies I got to watch that week. That's how I found Plan 9. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny because back then, at least in the like mid-60s, um, uh, the way that the TV guide described monster movies was by calling them melodrama so <laughs> i in going through the tv guide i would if i, I look for the word melodrama because melodrama equals monster right oh, funny. uh and uh and no it was me i would i would go i knew when the when the tv guide would come out um for the for the next week and so i would go down there was a corner you know uh a corner store across from the railroad that you know, had all the magazines and would have TV guides. So I would go down there and get it. And yeah, right away, just going through it, looking, you know, circling, circling. I knew where, I knew when Creature Features was going to be on. I knew when Chiller Theater was going to be on. I knew when, you know, Supernatural Theater or Fright Night or whatever they, whatever they were called. I knew that, you know, what to look for at that, those time periods. But everything else was just like random. <laughs> so, um, I really had to pay attention. <laughs> well, they, they threw a wrench in the works for us here in the Bay Area. You also had, besides Creature Features and Chiller uh, Diller, you had uh, Dialing for Dollars, which occasionally would show, like, you know, um, uh, the Gargoyle or, or the Gorgon. Um, we also had the 330 movie over on Channel 7 that would have Godzilla. You know, so yeah. as a kid, you're yeah. looking like, okay, oh, oh, there we go, that one there. <laughs> And, you know, I, I've said this before, when I was growing up, if, if you missed that 3.30 movie or that creature feature yeah. of that movie, there was no VCR or anything. I thought yeah. I'd never see it again. I thought, you know, it was going to air once and that was it. Yeah. The only the only thing that we, we did have uh, a little more access to were the Castle films, the condensed 8mm oh, uh, yeah. versions of them. Right. Um, which were great, except that they, you know, they were silent. You know, would have subtitles, incorrect subtitles often. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and, you know, what's funny about that is that one of the ones that one of my friends had, he had the, um, uh, he had Creature from the Black Lagoon castle film. And, uh, and we watched it over and over and over again. And the big shock to me was when I finally saw it on CBS at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That roar, like I had no idea that the creature even made any kind of noise when that huge roar comes out. And I was just like, wow, (laughs) wow, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, I I used to take those castle films and I'd like take a tape recorder, like a cassette deck and record like soundtracks for them. Oh, that's cool. And then I'd have to sync it up and play them back. And uh, yeah, that was the only way I could get sound for those. 
uh, realize that the light's gonna go out on me, so I'm just gonna plug. Oh, that's okay. We're we're just audio anyway. We do oh, this so are. we okay. can see each other. Don't have to worry about it. Well, I'll do it anyway. Cause as long as you, as long as you sound good, we're good. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, uh, so going yeah. through your lifelong love of monsters, mm. what was the first project you fell into where uh, you were able to actually work on one of these things? Well, you know, I like a lot of other people um, made my own movies first, um, mm. you know, uh, Super 8 movies, uh, uh, clay, uh, stop motion animation. Um, I made a werewolf movie where I turned into a werewolf and did the most rudimentary uh, makeup effects ever. I was definitely leaning more towards the Henry Hall look than Lon Chaney Jr. because it was minimal at best. Had to you wait know, for I, the family dog to start shedding so you can like brush him off. And get all the <laughs> Um, I guess, I mean, I think it was even just like drawn on with, with, uh, makeup sticks and, mm -hmm. you know, and a pair of plastic bangs, but, um, but I didn't, it didn't matter. <laughs> no, it really didn't matter. Um, uh, it, it got, it, 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 it served the purpose, right? Yeah. Hey, friends, you made a movie, so that's cool. We made a lot of them actually. And, yeah. and some of them you can see they're, they're actually on YouTube. Um, uh, uh, uh the, the sort of more polished ones anyway uh that that i made um there's a few of them uh, uh one of them which i really love um is called out of the frying pan and and it's me 15 years old me being chased all over the all over the uh, area of the woods where i lived by uh, a much bigger guy with a green plastic machine gun um and um and so it's it's basically it's a chase film but but just for fun we threw in a stop motion animated tyrannosaurus rex <laughs> uh which uh, you know ends up ends up uh, uh uh being part of the, the the big surprise of it all so um, so we, we, we love to work out like fight scenes and, and so forth. And, 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 you know, sometimes we were really learning about, you know, camera angles and, you know, we understood that we had to shoot it, you know, several different ways so that it would cut together. And that's back when you, oh my God, <laughs> you guys edited in super eight, oh, yeah. right? With, with the little machine that you put the two pieces in, then you're going to use the glue or the tape to like glue it together. And inevitably, it was the weirdest thing because the the frame where you made the cut would it would be it would cut in the middle of a frame. So there was, so every time it went to another shot, it was there was this weird like <laughs> this weird little yeah. um, black mark or something like that. You know, it used to frustrate the heck out of me. Um, but we made a whole bunch of them, um, and it was really super fun. And but you know, but it was kids making you know little short movies. I remember um, back then you'd have to like if you had like a ray gun, then you'd have yeah, to take a pin yeah. and scratch the emulsion yep. off the film to make oh, the yeah. ray. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. That was great. We would do that for uh, uh, yeah for. Uh, well, another one that we did was I was a big Charlton Heston fan, especially for that that, uh, that his his whole climb off my back era, you know, <laughs> like the Apes and Soylent Green and, and right. you know, Omega Man, and 
And um, I and I also loved um, Richard Matheson's book, I Am Legend. So we made our, <laughs> our own version. It was called The Last Omega Man on Earth. And but it was it was a parody and it was completely silly. Um, and but but like then, you know, if I had a gun, we would have to do exactly what we were saying about, about taking the, oh. the, 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 a little pin and, and scratching the little uh, little flares that come out of the, the end of the gun and so forth. And we'd use lipstick for blood stains. <laughs> I would, you'd use whatever whatever you had at your, you know, whatever resources you had available to you, you know. And sometimes it, the the effect would be surprisingly good, you know, um, if you if it was a good day. Um, but but still, like the the world of, of professional filmmaking was still miles away from me. I didn't, you know, I, I was living in New York, so not there was some film filmmaking going on there, but not a, not a whole lot. Um, most of it was out here in, in L.A., obviously. Um, so I still didn't know, aside from what I could read uh, in magazines or occasionally see in, in a special about how something was made, um, I, I didn't really know how movie making worked. And then... One day, and I, I was a, a little older now, I'm like 19, about, I think. Um, a friend of mine, um, he was, his parents were very wealthy. They owned um, Nina Shoes, which was a really big company back then. I don't even know if they still exist, but they back then they were one of the major shoe um, uh, manufacturers uh, and designers. And... Um, they had a, a mansion that was in a very exclusive part of the town that I grew up in, which was Port Washington uh, on Long Island, North Shore of Long Island. And this peninsula off of Port Washington was called Sands Point, and that's where the rich people is, right? <laughs> um, uh, in fact, um, uh, uh, John Cassavetes had a house there. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, Edgar Winter lived there, um, so uh, they weren't there all the time. But we we always heard that somebody might see them occasionally. So anyway, one day my friend Scott calls me up and he says, uh, "Hey, this is really cool. They're shoot they're going to be shooting a movie at my parents' house, like a real movie." And he goes, "You want to come over and watch?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he didn't tell me what the movie was. So I get there and uh, get my first lesson in about being on film sets which is <laughs> like you know i got there out of my car in the driveway and i'm like i'm looking for scott and they're like everyone's <laughs> building around the back right so uh go around the back and what i see is martin scorsese and robert de niro oh. and, jerry, and jerry lewis wow <laughs> And they're filming the King of Comedy, Comedy. at my friend's house, and I didn't know I didn't know what that was. I didn't know the plot of it or anything like that, obviously. But but I was uh, I I just was couldn't believe it. I knew who Scorsese was because I had seen Taxi Driver and you know his other films, 
And I certainly knew who De Niro was. And Jerry Lewis, well, you know. Watching those telethons. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, more so than, than his movies, probably. Yeah. Um, but then for the next two hours, you know, I got to, I got to watch Scorsese direct these, these two amazing actors um, in a confrontational scene. And I was, I was, I, it was, it was kind of life changing because now I was looking around and I was seeing all these people doing all these different jobs and, and how, um, how efficient it seemed. And, um, I, I was just like, wow, okay. So now I, now at least I have a taste and I can see, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there was a, there was a girl who I went to, had, went to high school with. Who was there working as was working as a PA, and she and she said something like, you know, you should get a PA job, but I didn't even know what PA meant. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so then I, you know, now now I had that at least, and I'd seen I'd seen how it how it works, how it physically works, and and uh, and it was a couple of years later that. I was working in Manhattan and uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from another person that I knew from um, God, all the way back to elementary school, John Pisano. And uh, he called me up and he, and he said, Hey, uh, you know, they're making, I, I wrote a script. I wrote a, a monster movie and they're making it up in Canada. And uh, I, there's a part that I thought you'd be good in. Um, so do you want to audition for it? And I was like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so I went and I, I auditioned and I got the part. And, and I think that John had really written the part for me because the character's name was Frank. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and John and I had done a lot of stage stuff back. And we, John and I had made little, you know, eight millimeter movies. And, and John was also a big monster fan like me. And, you know, back then, uh, before the internet and where people were, it was easier for people to connect and so forth. I mean, you know, being a, a, a monster kid, as we like to right. refer to ourselves mm -hmm. now, could sometimes be a lonely existence because you, there weren't a lot of other kids who had the share the same interests. So for me, for me to meet, you know, the, and become friends with somebody like John, um, you know, that was that was important. There was somebody to share uh, imagination and, and ideas and artwork and et cetera with. Right. So so now I'm going to Canada to make my first movie, um, but I'm just as a, just as an actor. And um, and it was called Zombie Nightmare. And I. Uh, <laughs> It's a terrible film. Um, <laughs> didn't didn't know that it was a terrible film right away when we were making it. Got a got a clue a few days in that maybe this wasn't you know gone with the wind. Um, but <laughs> it was still an amazing experience because now I was now I was in it. Right. Now I'm a part of it. And that was amazing. And, and I tried to learn as much as I could when I, I would go on, I would go to set even if I wasn't in the scene. Uh -huh. um, just to watch, just to shadow 
um, the you know different people and kind of figure like what like spend it spend a, a night next to the sound guy watching what he does uh, you know etc and um, and it was really it was it was a great experience even if the movie isn't good um, and I got to work with Adam West which was oh, a big deal. Oh, I can't beat that. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I was of the perfect age when, when Batman premiered on ABC. I was, I was seven in 1966. So, um, uh, you know, to, if you had told me in, <laughs> you know, when I was seven, right. that someday I was going to be acting in a movie with my hero, you know, I, I probably would have just exploded or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but um, that was that was remarkable that was an amazing experience and adam was great um uh he we got along great and and which was good because we almost all of our scene scenes were together um the film and the here's the thing everything else about the movie was professional i mean the crew was professional the makeup guys were great. Um, one of them is uh, was Andy Clement, who now um, now is like a, you know a, a, a very uh, celebrated professional makeup artist in the business. Um, and this was one of his first gigs. But the the makeup effects in the movie are really good. Um, the production value for the budget that it was is is quite good. The only thing that wasn't good was the director, who was awful was really awful um and i but not uh, you know, <laughs> i couldn't compare to martin scorsese obviously right? so, <laughs> um uh, so but so i didn't really know he was awful until started seeing little signs uh, you know that was just that showed that he didn't really care mm. um uh he was just like you know get get the shot and move on like no uh, he didn't want to. He didn't want to spend any. He didn't want to do any extra effort to make the scenes better than they could be, or to have more more angles for the editors to work with, more coverage. Um, and that that really hurt that film more than anything else because, um, you know, the truth is that the script, aside from some childish dialogue, which John often wrote. In his movies, for whatever reason, um, you know the the story was kind of cool. But <laughs> finally, you know, and seeing the movie, look, I was I was still happy I did it, and uh, and it started me off, you know, on the rest of my career. Um, so uh, I made I made three more movies with John Fasano, um, all up in Canada uh, after that. Nice. And uh, and on each one of them, I did I learned something new. I did something new. I, I started to learn how to do the special effects. So on on the next one we did Rock and Roll Nightmare, another nightmare, um, <laughs> which wasn't the wasn't the title. That's what pissed me off. I came up with, with a, 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 the original title for it, which was The Edge of Hell, and I loved that title. And but the distributor. I don't know. I, I I don't know if it's because they had seen Zombie Nightmare that they thought, well, you we should make this one a nightmare also, which it was. Uh, um, first one did so well. Yeah, exactly. So, a double bill with 
rock and roll nightmare and zombie nightmare. Yeah, the nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I learned I learned how to how to sculpt, how to how to make molds of that sculpture, how to run foam, how to you know put how to apply makeup onto the you know the masks and everything like that. It was all stuff that. Um, I learned over the course of making that movie. So everybody on that on that movie wore many hats. So I was the second uh, second AD. I was in. I was acting in the movie. I was uh, working on the special effects, creating special effects for it. We were, all did whatever we needed to do. It was. It really was. Hey, let kids. Let's you know. Let's go make a movie in a barn, and. Actually, it really was in a barn. <laughs> so, uh, kind of, yeah, we shot in a in a in a barn that strangely had a um, a sixteen track um, audio stu- uh, studio in there um, for whatever reason. I don't know how they found that location. Right. Um, well, you should I see know- where we're doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I I just remember it being so so cold because we were hmm. shooting in. Toronto, uh, outside of Toronto in November, and the the wind that comes you know across Lake Ontario is just brutal. Uh, it's so cold, and uh, anytime we had to do a scene where we were outside, we just could not wait for the director to yell action so that we could get back inside as quickly as possible. So it was super cold, but. So, did two more movies where I act. I acted in them also, but um, also would do effects when needed. I think on the last one, because I did Black Roses, uh, and then and then one called The Jitters, which was a a sort of an American version of um, the Mister Vampire movies from Japan. Oh yeah, the hopping the hopping vampire films. Uh, Sammo Hung and yeah yeah. Uh, well, this was an attempt to to Americanize it um, because they were so popular in Japan. They thought, well, maybe they can be popular here as well. Um, uh, didn't work. Didn't work. Um, uh, it was so weird too. Just just last week, uh, I had uh, uh, we had a reunion for that movie, uh, like mm-hmm. a, like a Zoom meeting with all the as many. people people as the, this guy could could gather from from the original cast and crew uh so it was a little weird the only person that we definitely couldn't get was was james Hahn because uh oh. james you know is now more popular than he's ever been oh yeah guy who's been in more movies than anyone else in the world right <laughs> um and and he doesn't like the movie so after <laughs> the reunion um but all of these movies you know, they've all they've all sort of come become these cult. They have they all of them have this cult following through them. Um, I can't even tell you how often I get invited onto podcasts to talk about those movies um, because there's just there's just groups of people that just love them. Black Roses is is crazy popular. Are they um, are they available anywhere or YouTube? Oh yeah, or anything, sure. Or? Um, uh, I, I well, uh, Shutter had Black Roses on. Uh, oh really? for, Okay. Uh, right around the same time that my Creep Show episode was airing. <laughs> um, so so I was all over Shutter that month. Right. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, most of them are available on on uh, some are on Blu-ray, some are just on DVD. The only one that's hard, really hard to find, is is the Jitters, the the Hopping Vampire one. Um, see, that's the one I would have wanted to see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't worry, Bob. I'll get I'll get you a link to it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but the, you know, but those four movies in that time that was film school for me. Uh, just learning, uh, learning as much as I could, and because of that, I started to to be more interested in writing than in acting. I, and I think part of it was that uh, I I I didn't have to really audition for those movies. The first one, yes, but after that, I became John Fasano used to refer to me as his Ward Bond. Right. He, he was like, he would put me in, he would just put me like a good luck charm or something into every movie and give me a role, a, you know, a decent role. And um, so, like, when the reality of having to actually audition uh, kicked in, uh, uh, it was different. I, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy that process at all. It's, it's, uh, uh, you, need, you need a certain visceral stamina for that, I think. Um, but I did become very interested in writing because when we were making Rock and Roll Nightmare, the the really cheapy one, uh, John came up to me and at that, you know, like I said, I was wearing a lot of hats and, and John came up to me at one point and he said, hey, you know what? I need a scene. I need a bridge between this scene and this scene because I need somebody to cut away to um, and I don't have anything else. So... We were about to shoot a scene where um, uh, my wife and I, we weren't actually married at the time, but we were playing newlyweds in the movie. We had this bedroom scene. And so John said, we're going to be shooting you guys in that room anyway. So do me a favor. He goes, just write a write a one page scene for you guys. So uh, I sat down with a pencil and paper and I wrote this scene like sitting on the set. You know, and I showed it to him and he read it and he went, great, let's shoot it. And uh, I, I I think that's where I got bitten by the writing bug because I really enjoyed that. I really like had fun. And and to, if I'm being completely honest and, and not and not from an ego point of view, but I think it's the best written scene in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just, uh, just because I, I, just because I think that I was working really hard to make it a good scene, you know, right. I wanted to, I tried to make it dialogue that was kind of fun and, you know, wasn't very expositional, which is someone told me is not a real word, but I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I use it all the time. Um, and that, that really piqued my interest in writing. And so then I started writing, and um, that inevitably led me to move from New York to Los Angeles to try to pursue a career in writing. <laughs> Which, you know, none of this stuff is easy, guys. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, how how difficult is it to not just write a script, but to get it sold and to get it actually produced? Uh, the writing part is easy yeah. compared, you know, um, I, 
I quit my job in the World Trade Center um, to move out to uh, to L.A. because John Fasano had moved out to L.A. and he hit the ground running. Like he sold a script like a six for six figures to Walter Hill uh, and the guys at Morgan Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he sold an action movie. Wow. And, um, yeah. And that movie never got made, but it led to John writing uh, another 48 hours and uh, the first like eight drafts of Alien 3 and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other movies. Um and um and put him you know like right away he's he had a career there right and uh, so I thought well I could do that <laughs> so um I I dragged my wife kicking and screaming from New York to L A with two scripts that I had that uh, I could not get anybody to look at. <laughs> I and I made all the rookie moves. I I I I sent the two scripts to every agency in town. They all came back unopened with a stamp on it saying we cannot legally open this unless it comes from a legitimate uh, representative, mm-hmm. an agency uh-huh. or a manager. Right? Um, nobody told me this stuff. <laughs> I try to tell, you know aspiring screenwriters <laughs> you know don't do that okay <laughs> you're gonna waste your money and your time uh doing it um but it was really frustrating and um i started to wonder if i had made the right choice um and uh something really interesting happened and this is kind of how things happen out there so um Leanne was was working, had started working in casting, um, like as a casting associate for, you know, one of the bigger, bigger names, uh, casting directors. And she was working at a place uh, down in Santa Monica, a production office. And um, I would go there occasionally and would get a, a little, I, they'd give me little jobs here and there. I tried writing um for the, one of the TV series that they were doing there on spec, meaning that I wrote it without being paid and hoped that they would buy it. And, uh, and they, they, there were both times there were reasons they couldn't buy it. Um, one was that, uh, the one that it was a mystery show. It was called, it was called sweating bullets and it was set down in the like Caribbean islands or whatever. It was a, you know, uh, detective show basically. And uh, the first one that I wrote, he said that, that the mystery wasn't strong enough. The second one I wrote, um, it, I wrote it was a vo- there was a voodoo plot in it, and he took one look at it and he went he went he says the network said no no voodoo stories. It's like shit. <laughs> that was like that yeah. was like the best episode of Colshack the Night Stalker was a voodoo one. Yeah, well for whatever reason you know the network was just like no you know. Yeah. And so it didn't matter. Um, but and then the, the show got canceled anyway, like after the first season, I think. But anyway, so while I was there, Leanne said, hey, you know, there's a really nice man over here uh, who's got an office over here. You should go talk to him. And uh, I went to go talk to this man. And he's, he says, hello, I'm Bill Asher. 
And it was William Asher. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't know, William Asher is a legendary producer director. He directed almost every episode of I Love Lucy. Oh. He uh, created uh, Bewitched uh, for his wife, uh, Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, and produced that for years. He also directed all the um, Beach Blanket movies, the Frankie Avalon and the Brunicello films. Okay. So he's, he was a at, at, at his, you know, at one time he was a very big deal. Um, retired now, mostly, and he was just there doing consulting work, I guess. But anyway, we sat down, we had a chat. I told him, you know, I've been trying to get people to read my scripts and I can't get anybody to read my scripts. And I'm thinking maybe I should, you know, throw in the towel. And he said, well, I'll, he said, I'll read your scripts. Right. So I was like, great. Yeah, cool. You know, so he, he took them and a couple of days later, he, he brought me back into his office and and he sat me down and he said, OK, he said, well, this this first one here, he goes, uh, he goes, I didn't love it. He said, uh, it's not that the writing is bad. He said, it's just that, uh, you know, he said, I produced for 10 years, I produced a TV series about magic. And so I'm kind of over the whole magic thing, supernatural thing. Um, so like it turns me off. So, uh, and that script had a lot of a supernatural element to it, but then he said, but the other one, he said, this one, he said, this is terrific. He said, this is really good. You're, you know, you have great characters. It's funny. Um, uh, it's really well written. He said, if this is any indication of what you're really capable of doing, he said, don't give up, stick with it. He goes, I guarantee you in, in time, and it was, you know, he said, I think he said in six months or so from now, if this is really what you can do, you'll get an agent or you'll get a manager. You'll get somebody to represent you. And so uh, stuck with it. And um, and he was right. About six months later, um, thanks to connections that you make just by doing things, you know, Leanne was casting. She cast this uh, actor named Mark Dacascus, who's who had a manager uh, that uh, was then you know, made that connection, and the manager agreed to read that same script that William Asher read, and she loved it, and so she took me on as a client. Before I knew it, uh, uh, my script I was selling scripts and then getting movies made with you know starring David Warner and Dean Stockwell and and. Barbara Crampton and and uh, and it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, it 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 was amazing, um, and I felt very lucky um, to. It, it, it's always it, sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right person at the right time. Uh, and there's no set way to to achieve things in this business. Um, you know, work hard certainly. But, um, you know, and, and, and hopefully have you know, good, actual good material uh, to show for it. Um, but, you know, if I had not, you know, been introduced to William Asher at that moment, um, who knows? You know, if I would have this career. I don't know. Right. right. Well, how, how did you get from writing scripts to doing art at Disney. I mean, yeah. That seems like, you know, I'm a writer. Well, can you, you know, can you draw a cell? Okay, do that. 
Well, it's it's um uh, again, it's funny. It's it's like I was I was working as a professional screenwriter. It was great. I was getting I was getting hired a lot actually. Um, and you know, not, not that every movie got made, it didn't matter. Um, but the fact that I was getting paid to write movies was, was mm-hmm. terrific, oh, yeah. but uh, it's a freelance job always, unless you get on a television series, which I wasn't, I was writing features. Um, and you know, it's a freelance job. So yeah, I might, um, I might sell a, a script you know, for, you know, $45,000 or something like that. And that's wonderful. And it's great. But then I might not sell another script for a, for a year or, you know, longer. Who knows? And, you know, so it's not stable work always. So what happened was, uh, again, again, it was it was like Leanne was was casting and she got the job casting at Disney at Disney animation. She was working on, she was casting, um, hunchback and, uh, and had started casting on Hercules. And she called me up one day and she was just like, you know, I'm looking at the artists here and, and she said, you could do this, you know, you could, you could get a job here probably. And I was like, well, that would be cool. Um, I would certainly love the stability of it and everything, all the perks that would come with it and not have to worry about, you know, for a while at least, you know, when I, when I might sell a script again. Right. Um, but the thing was, is that I didn't, I didn't really know. how. <laughs> I mean, I knew how animation worked, but I, but I, I didn't know specifically how it was done. Right. I, I mean, I knew it was, you know, frame by frame and, and, you know, hand drawn, you know, stuff, all that kind of stuff. But I, but I didn't know how, how, how to do it. So I very quickly started taking classes in animation. Uh, and so I, luckily, uh, the, the animation guild, the union was right here in North Hollywood at the time. Uh, and they offered classes to people who weren't in the union. Um, you could you could take classes in how to do cleanup animation, uh, which is what I was, you know, hoping to be able to get a job doing. And uh, so I took all these classes, life drawing classes. Uh, I could I could always draw, but I never had any real training because I what well, I got arrogant, uh, you know, when I was in my teens or late teens or whatever. And it was like. You know, everybody my whole life is saying, oh, you're going to be an artist when you grow up. You're going to be an artist grow up. And I reached I reached that level of, you know, teen angst where I'm like, you don't you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a writer. You know, no, usually, so, usually they're telling you you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or something and you want to do something creative. But yeah, they're pushing you towards something creative. And then yeah, it's still yeah. rebelled. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they knew better than to try to steer me in any other kind of direction. But, but you know, I just was like, no, I, I like acting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Um, but now, now I had a chance to actually be an artist, a real artist, and so I had to take classes. I had to learn how to. I, I could draw, but I had to learn how to, how to really draw. I had to have, have not just the nat- not just the natural ability, but, but a skills. So I took all these classes and 
Uh, I put together a portfolio, which um, for for anyone who's listening who uh, ever considered, um, uh, you know, putting a, a portfolio together and submitting it to any animation studio, I can tell you right now, the last thing that they want to see is drawings of Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny or any any character uh, from movies or television. The only thing they want to see is life drawing and animal drawing and gesture drawing. They want they don't want to see that you can draw Mickey Mouse. They want to see that you can draw, that you understand mm-hmm. how how art works, right? So luckily, I got that heads up before I submitted and and submitted a portfolio, and I got into the training program at Disney, which was, it was like, I wish I could remember how long it was. I want to say it, I mean, it felt like two months maybe. Um, and during that time, they, they, it was me, by the way, I was in my mid thirties at that time. Everyone else in the training class were all in their, their like young twenties. <laughs> because they were all right out of co- they were all right out of college they were right out of Cal Arts uh, you know which is a, which is a, a college that Walt Disney basically built to groom people to work for him you know? uh, and uh, so I was like the old man <laughs> right and um, but we but uh, it was fun it was fun we we all really wanted to get get this job and and so we all trained really hard and, and then we had to take a test at the end of it a two-day test where they gave us a scene and we had to to basically do the scene and it would be judged and then the decision would be made if we get to be actually hired um, by the studio and um, it was great because I everybody got in oh nice yeah it was nice there was no, there was no sad people. <laughs> they might be sad later, but oh, right there now. you go. Um, but um, we all got in, and they threw us right into the fire. <laughs> we went right onto Hercules, which was already in production, and uh, was a little behind production, in fact, because um, what happened was that um, uh, um, what's his name, uh, DreamWorks. Um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, uh, the guy who left Disney, guy who done The Lion King and so forth, left Disney um, to go start his own studio, DreamWorks, with with Spielberg and mm. and, um, and uh, he poached people from Disney, right? Um. Yeah, and so Disney was now down artists. They needed to fill now fill in those spaces again. So they were, you know, they were actively bringing in new people to work on the film. And they had a great, they had a big slate of movies set to go, you know. Um, so we, I, I got, so I worked on Hercules and I loved it. It was great. I, I was, it was, I, I, now it was a good time to be there because it was still the post Lion King boom. Where animation was up, you know, animation kind of does this roller coaster thing, and at the time it was at the high point. Um, so they were very generous, treated us really well, threw us parties, gave us lots of swag, lots of gifts, 
you know, to keep us happy and, and so that we, you know, we didn't go down the street to DreamWorks, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, and it was it, it was it was wonderful. And I, then I I stayed. I stayed for like almost eight years. Um, worked on Mulan, Tarzan, uh, Fantasia, two thousand, um, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, a uh, little bit of Treasure Planet, and then the 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 last the last one that was which was the last two D movie that they made at least for a while. Um, which the movie the name we don't speak because it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> It's just not it's not a good movie. The, the last one. Um, now I have to look at that. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm. If it was called Home on the Range, uh, and it it oh, wow. was it was a set. No, it was a western, and it just um, it it went it went through a lot. It was a kind of movie that was sort of troubled from the beginning, and it went through lots and lots of changes as the movie was being made, and and it's just it just kind of not not very good. Um, uh, mostly, I, I'm sure people, there's some people who probably like it, but um, most of the most of the people I know that worked on it didn't like it. <laughs> uh, um, so then, so, so that was the last two movie, and because the the studio had made a decision to move, you know, to to move into CG because the Pixar movies were were doing so well financially, and they and they sort of attributed. That it was like, oh, the Pixar movies are making lots of money, while our 2D movies aren't making as much money. So it must mean that CG movies mean money and 2D don't, which is ridiculous. But that was kind of the way they were thinking at the time, because I've always maintained that, you know, if you made Finding Nemo in 2D, it would still be a great movie. Yeah. You know, it would just it would look a little different, but this it's all about story. It's all right. about story, right? So, um, so then so it ended, and uh, you know, it's pretty sad to have it end because it was I had a really good run there, and and I liked it. Um, but now it was time to to move on, and so I went right back to screenwriting, basically. Um, there was still occasionally jobs uh you know animation jobs that would come up um for 2d stuff and and those those projects were usually farmed out by disney to smaller animation studios who would then hire disney artists like myself because they knew that we came with that pedigree and that we we were trained there at disney and they knew that we were going to do a good job so So I would continue to work in animation, not just not full time. It was more freelance, and it went back to writing. And um, I, I, I didn't have an I didn't have an a, a manager anymore because um, sadly she she became ill and passed away while I was uh, still at Disney. Um, and but I was lucky that a lot of the producers that I had worked with prior. To working at Disney, um, you know, remembered me and remembered, you know, that my work was pretty good, and so I was able to get work through those folks, and and actually went like almost ten years without representation. I was just it was just word of mouth, relying on uh, you know uh, uh, producers I'd already worked with. Huh. Um, 
who would who would recommend me to other producers. Um, I had a pretty good reputation for fixing unfilmable scripts, so they would have a, um, a, a you know a production company might have a script that they really love the idea of it, but the script is is not viable. It's not filmable. And whether it's whether it's budget wise or it's just it's just not working to their satisfaction or whatever. So, um, I, I mean, I don't like to use the term script doctor, um, but I definitely was a lot of times brought in to to fix scripts that they already had. And most of the time that would that would be a page one rewrite. So I would I would I would I would get the gist of it. I would listen to the producers to find out what they want, really want. And then I would chuck that, that other script and, and start from scratch. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it worked. Um, sometimes a movie got made. Sometimes it didn't. Um, a lot of the time it didn't. Uh, even though I get hired, uh, at, you know, the truth is, you know, it's a common misconception about screenwriting as professional screenwriters is that, you know, you write a script, you sell it, it gets made. You write the next script, you sell it, it gets made. The truth is maybe, you know, five to seven percent of the things you get hired to write actually get made. I mean, unless you're, you know, way up there in the, in the escalons of the studio system. Um, but um you know, I, 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 I really love writing. And then there was the other thing too that came along was, um, adapt, adapting, uh, existing books into screenplays, which I've done a few times now. Um, I, I wrote, um, I, I wrote an adaption of, um, a, a book, uh, by Betsy Franco. Who are uh, uh, you know Dave Franco's uh, uh, mom, who's an author, uh, and uh, and I've done a few of them actually now, and that's really fun because that's where you really sometimes have to be creative, you know, especially if a book is written in the first person where you're you're reading their thoughts. Um, you have to find a way uh, to, without using a you know a narration right a voiceover. To get that information onto the page, you know, in some clever way. Right, right. Um, and so I, I really, I really love that challenge. That was really, really fun. But so here's here's the here's the the most amazing thing that happened. Okay, uh, I had written a script. Uh, with uh, co-written the script with a friend of mine, a producer named Todd Trena. And we had, he was one of the guys who was all, like getting me work quite often, right? And we got along really well. Great, really super great guy. Um, and we wrote a script called Without a Hitch. And it was a comedy. And, uh, you know, he had been pitching it for a while. And we changed at one point. We changed the name. I I changed the name because I thought without a hitch wasn't really working, and I I changed the name to I Hate Kids, right? <laughs> which we thought which we thought was funny, right? Um, and most people laughed when they heard the name of the script, right? So, um, but you know, Todd is pitching it around and so forth, and and 
we had a meeting um, at when you know one of the Beverly Hills hotels one day for a different project. And when we were when we were finished with the meeting, we're going to get our val you know <laughs> get our cars from the valet or whatever. And, and uh, Todd says, "Oh, um, by the way, uh, we have some movement on I Hate Kids." And I'm like, oh, cool, great. You know, I always take everything with a grain of salt in this business because, you know, most of the time things don't happen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and he said, yeah, he goes, uh, I've got an investor. Um, we already have, um, uh, we've got $1 million already. He goes, I'll be working to raise the rest of it, you know, to, to make the movie. And, and he said, and we have a director. And I said, oh, cool, what's his name? He said, his name is John Asher. <laughs> and I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. The circle said, of life. Is it John, John Mallory Asher? And he said, oh, I don't know his middle name. I said, oh, um, was, he, was he a child actor? Was he um, on the Weird Science TV series? He was, oh, I don't know. I said, was he married to Jenny McCarthy? And John said, yeah, that's him. And I, I, I was just, my, my mind was blown because this is the son of the man who 20 years earlier told me not to quit. How and funny. At, at that moment, I knew that that movie was going to get made. Uh, and and it did. Um, and I'm very proud of it to this day. Um, it came out like uh, two, 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 two years ago, three years ago, somewhere around there. Um, but it, it had an amazing cast. Everything went perfectly, and and John Landis uh, was one of the executive producers on it, um, uh, which meant a lot to me because he directed some of the greatest comedies of all time. Mm -hmm. And the fact he liked my script enough to you know to want to produce it was really was about as good as it gets. And you know, and then I had titus burgess and tom everett scott and marissa tomei and ray seahorn who hopefully is now going to finally win an emmy for better call saul this year <laughs> um but uh a, an amazing cast and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because john asher wanted me on set every day nice which is very rare for the writer to, to be invited on set uh, every day, <laughs> you know, was, was he uh, calling for rewrites every day, or well, well, or no, just opinions, or yeah, he wanted my opinion. There were two times when he asked me, um, just like my very first little gig from with John Fasano, he said, you know, John Asher said, "Hey, I need a little scene um, to bridge these two scenes." And the cool part about it was that. Uh, I, I could write the scene there on set with my my laptop, and then I would ha and then I would have Ray Seahorn and Rachel Boston right there, the actresses, who I could call over and say, "Guys, just read the scene for me, so I can hear how it sounds uh, before I present it to, to John Asher." You know, so that was that was great. <laughs> nice. uh, so that happened twice during the course of the filming. But but it was just nice that that, you know, my my opinion was still valued. And also the fact that John Asher didn't like completely rewrite the script, which he had the right to. The, the director always gets the final pass on the script. Um, and, you know, you you don't argue it. Um, it's his movie now, not yours. 
Um, I mean, I still call it my movie, but <laughs> but, but at that point, I, I've I've been paid for it, so it's it's really John Ashley's movie, um, uh, and and that was an amazing experience. Um, and I, I, you know, not du- not directly, but it um, it certainly helped me um, uh, get to write uh, for Creepshow. Nice. Um, so, you know, everything leads to something else. And, and I found that it's really important in this business. At least I found it important to make sure you, that you, uh, are diversified, that you have more than one skill. Uh, uh, even if you're not great at, uh, you know, at, at everything that you do, um, have something you can fall back on. For the times when sometimes you know the rug gets pulled out from under you, it, you know the Disney job ended when mm-hmm. I thought I might be doing it forever, and uh, or um, you know there's a drought of uh, screenwriting work, so maybe maybe that's when I can find some animation work. You know what I mean? So toggle it back and forth or whatever. All right. Yeah, I think a lot of the listeners would be interested in the Creep Show episode. For those who don't know, it was the episode with Josh McDermott as a. Uh, as an exterminator, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I was that again. That's another example of me being absolutely thrilled with the cast. And it's what's funny about Josh McDermott because I was um, I, I like I always liked him as Eugene on The Walking Dead. Um, I met him uh, at a party um, at Greg Nicotero's, like a Christmas party one one year at Greg's house. Greg Nicotero's house, and he was a really funny guy. I liked him, you know, right away. Um, and um, so when we went to go cast um, uh, the the episode, uh, which was called Pesticide, uh, at first I think I think that Greg had said that he he approached Rain Wilson to play the part, but Rain Wilson wasn't available. So we were trying to think who else would be really good to play this exterminator character. And and I thought of Josh, right? So I texted Greg and I said, hey, I had an idea. What do you think about Josh McDermott uh, to play Harlan? And Greg texted me back like five minutes later. And he just said, that's really funny because I've already hired him. (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay i guess it's a good choice then right but then um keevan who i always loved um you know since the thing john carpenter's the thing um and and um ashley lawrence from the hellraiser movies to be the three people you know the three leads in, in my episode was i that's as good as it gets <laughs> you know i mean for me right um uh, it was remarkable, but I, I, I can tell you how, how actually that, that happened. Um, uh, I hate kids had given me a little more cred. Um, uh, and so, so, so Greg would be quicker to, to look at something that I wrote, um, because I had now recently had a, a feature film made with, you know, with, um, a, a, a good cast and so forth. And, um, so I went to, Greg invited me to the premiere party for season one of Creepshow. 
which um, uh, you know he had gotten he had gotten the rights to to uh, the the franchise and uh, uh, and he had always said to me I, you know I want to make it like the night gallery I wanted to have like you know a couple of segments in each episode right so so he invited me to the to the premiere party and I went there and uh, I was I felt I was so jealous. Because so many of my friends were there because they had worked on it in some capacity. So, like my friend Dana Gould uh, was uh, in an episode as an actor. Uh, my friend Chris Drake had scored uh, several of the episodes. Um, my friend David J. Scow had written an episode. And I was just like, I want to play in this sandbox, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I want to do this. So, uh, they, when it got picked up, uh, for season two, the, literally the day after I heard that it, it was picked up for season two, I sat down and in two days I wrote out an episode on spec. Nice. I didn't tell Greg I was writing it. I was I just I just wrote it wrote the whole thing not even an outline I wrote all the dialogue the whole 24 page script and um, I was so nervous <laughs> to, to give it to him I Greg and I have been friends for like 25 years like way before The Walking Dead you know um, but um, and mostly because of our mutual love of monster movies right oh yeah um, and uh, but I was still I was still very nervous to, to show it to him, right? And uh, so I sent it, and he called me like two days later, and he said, I love this. He goes, I really love this. I'm, I, I, I want to direct this. Oh. And I was, I was, of course, thrilled, but he, but he also said, but here, here's the thing. He said, I can't approve it myself it has to go the network has to read it they have to approve it he said so i i'm going to submit it right now because there's only like two slots left um uh, to fill for the season and he um so he submitted it and thankfully the network came back and and said we love this um uh, and and i'm telling you it felt like it was only hours later that a messenger showed up on my door with a contract. <laughs> like they wanted it on paper. They wanted to, to purchase it immediately and get it get it going. Um, and one of the wonderful things about that was, you know, my whole screenwriting career, I had I was writing movies features. I never had worked in television. I, w I wanted to, but that was just a, somehow I it was a nut I couldn't seem to crack. Um, now, finally, I've written an episode of a television series, which got me into the the Writers Guild. After all these years of being a writer, <laughs> finally got in the Writers Guild, right? Um, and they um, they they made the episode. Um, I unfortunately. I, I actually had a plane ticket to go down to Atlanta to be on set with Greg and, and, and Josh and Keith and Ashley. Uh, and then I, it was literally 
three or four days before when uh, everything shut down. Uh, <laughs> so, boom. Every production uh, in the business shut down, including Creep Show. So by the time, uh, and that and that was the you know what was that the beginning of uh, 20, 2020? 2020? late twenty nineteen yeah March um, April twenty twenty yeah uh, by the time they had worked out how to con- how to resume shooting things which wasn't until months later the uh, the COVID restrictions were still like really in place. Like they had to be tested twice a day and you had to, everybody's masked up. And, and unfortunately, only people who were necessary to be on set uh, were allowed. So I couldn't, I couldn't go. Like I couldn't uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> but Greg was so cool. Uh, he, he would every couple, every, you know, few days or a couple of days or whatever. God, they shot I me. Mean, they shot the thing in three and a half days. So uh, he would send me little videos that he would just, you know, shoot on uh, with his with his phone on the video village or, or, you know, or just on his phone. And he would he would send it to me so I could see a little bit of what was going on on set. Nice. Uh, um, and um, I was just so happy to now be a part of the creep show family that's cool yeah is yeah. there is there another season coming up are you gonna try to get one in on another season. episode no um there's one more season uh that that hasn't aired yet that's uh season four um i did i did write another episode um but you know what, what happens with shows like this is that as seasons go on uh budgets tend to be cut um mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's very typical of all television series or sequels to movies, you know, et cetera. Um, and um, I think that the episode, the second episode that I wrote was probably just a little too pricey. <laughs> I, had written, I had written this episode that had people turning into alligators. So <laughs> it might have been, might have been a, little, a little too much. Um, but I, I'll hold on to that script because, you know, I'll submit it to other shows, you know. Yeah, no. There are other uh, anthology shows that you know are are uh, being uh, developed. So sure. um, I never throw anything away. <laughs> oh, just adapt it to an episode of like Strange New Worlds or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, um, the idea of the pesticide script I originally had before I even moved out to L.A. Like I had the idea of it. Uh, and I and I had actually at the time that I, I I I guess I had written it back then, but that but that version of it is long gone. But I I pictured it as an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, oh, which was yeah. on active at that. I remember that, yeah. Um, and uh, and I always I just love I always loved the concept of it, even though that that original script was you know, God knows I mean. I mean, it was probably written on a like, uh, you know, some very very old computer or something. You know? <laughs> um, so I basically, when I when I when I did write it for Creepshow, I was I was starting from scratch and just okay. you know sticking with just the ideas that I I had um, from from back then. 
and right. and the main the two, the two main characters basically. So, um, cool. So anyway, it's like yeah, you hold on to everything that, that because you never know when you might be able to. Especially, um, I've written comedies where there was a line where there was a gag that I I just loved, but. Sometimes, even you know, you have a bit of dialogue that, as much as you love it, you have to lose your babies, as they, <laughs> as they call it, and and you just realize that it just really doesn't fit anymore because the scene has changed or whatever, and and you have to you have to take it out, and but I'll always tuck it away in the back of my brain, you know, and and see if there's maybe some other script where that same kind of situation can just be adapted, you know. Um, and keep a I keep a, a, a notebook sort of um, uh, on my phone. I actually have a, uh, a you know a note um, that is just lines that I thought of that I just really like and hope to use someday. Cool. <laughs> There's a little treasure chest, basically. Yeah. That is cool. <laughs> Well, Frank, we can keep on. Uh, we're probably going to need to kind of come back and visit us at some point in time. Sure. But we're coming up on the uh, the end of the of the podcast here, and like we spoke earlier, yeah, usually we have a, a sensor sweep, but we'd like to hear what your maybe any projects you can share with us, uh, or um, if you can share. People have questions or want to check out social media, or do you have a web page? Oh, yeah. Um, could you share that with us? Sure. Well, I do have a web page. Um, it is uh, sketchythingsart.com. Nice. <laughs> okay. Um, and that that website kind of covers all of the stuff that I do. So the animation, uh, the screenwriting, the the act, the occasional acting. Um, and on there is also I'll have a list of um, whatever new kind of book I have out or what or my, or whatever next appearance I'll be doing, like what the next convention uh, or, or or film festival or whatever uh, yeah. is coming up. Um, I have one coming up in October in St. George, Utah. It's called the Horror Fest International Film Festival, and it's a uh, a horror film festival that I attended last year and just had a blast. I had so much fun. I saw some really cool films there and and. Um, got to participate in a lot of uh, panels and so forth uh, during it. Um, that's, Sounds that's, fun. Yeah, that's like mid-October. Um, uh, but I'm also on social media. Um, on Facebook, I'm Frank Dietz. Uh, on Instagram and on Twitter, I'm the Frank Dietz because there there was another Frank Dietz. So distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah, you could you can find me there. Please, you know, come. I'm I'm posting. Lately, I've been posting a lot. There was, you know, when I used to be busy, I would I, I would not be good at keeping up with social media. Right, <laughs> but, right. But um, uh, but it's a little more relaxed now, so I, I post almost every day on there. Cool. Yeah. Well, like I say, we had a lot of fun talking with you tonight, and what a fascinating career and uh, great stories and, and anecdotes. So uh, thank you for being with us. We look forward uh, to having you with us again. And uh, who knows, maybe uh, the intrepid crew of Planet 8 will meet you out there at one of these conventions or uh, or shows. No, I'd love that. I'd love that. I, look, this was, I, I, 
I've, I've known Bob for a long time, like, like we said, and uh, I've always liked him. And, and it's really nice to meet you, Barry and Karen. And uh, um, this was my pleasure. Well, thank you very much. That's it right, was yeah. our pleasure as well. We got to get you back at least to talk about Beast Wishes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm all big, big fans of Bob Burns. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready when you are, guys. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, look, that takes us to the end of this show. Uh, everybody stay safe. Thank you for listening. And uh, until we meet again, peace out. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true.